following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. If you've got a Bible, uh, turn with me to Isaiah 64. I'm going to continue our series in Isaiah. The words will be up on the screen. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies, and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down, and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and you have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned with fire and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? That's the word of the Lord this morning. Now, um, when I was a little bit younger, and I think I had a bit more hair, um, I was living at home with my parents And um, I remember my dad had this job where he got a car allowance. And with that allowance, he bought himself a Mitsubishi Diamante three-liter engine. I remember having a lot of fun times learning to drive in that car. If you have kids, don't teach them to drive in a three-liter engine. It's not a good idea. Um, But yeah, it it was a cool car. But unfortunately, this one always had problems. You know, it was always in the mechanic getting fixed. Um, And thankfully, dad had a warranty with his car. But one day, the mechanic called him up and said, look, I can't fix your car anymore because uh, the insurance company's not going to pay. So, of course, Dad's then frantically on the phone to the insurance company trying to resolve this issue, and all they're doing is trying to weasel out of the claim like they always did. And then, uh, you know, Dad's back on the phone to the mechanic and then back to the insurance company, and eventually the whole process just stalls, ends in a stalemate. The mechanic says, what do you want me to do? I'm not going to work for free. Your car's in pieces on the floor. Come pick it up. The insurance company were like, well, no, this doesn't fit. So at that point, I remember Dad hanging up the phone and um, closing his eyes and praying out loud and just said, Lord, I've done no wrong here. I'm in the right here. All right? You know, this is unjust. Lord, please, just come down and act. Come down and do something here. And within an hour, the phone rings. And it's the insurance company. And they said, look, we've, you know, we've had a chat to the mechanic. We'll just pay the claim. It's easier. Now, those of you who have dealt with insurance companies know that's nothing short of miraculous when that happens. Because <laughs> okay, they generally don't change their mind. I've worked for insurance companies many years. I know they don't budge. All right. um, 
there we go. Life carries on as normal. Everything was back to normal after that. All right? Now, I'm telling you that story not so that you go and approach my dad afterwards and say, look, I've got a prayer request. You seem to have direct access. Okay, can we talk? All right. I'm sure my dad would love to pray for you, but uh, okay, that's not the point. I think the point is my dad prayed a prayer much like Isaiah prayed in this passage. Lord, come down and act. Lord, come down and do something. And who hasn't prayed that? We've all done that. We all pray that a thousand times. Lord, come down and deal with these bullies in my school and making my life hell. Lord, help me pass my exams. Lord, help me get into a good university. Lord, come help me find a job. It's so hard in this market. Lord, help my business. We're suffering because of COVID. Lord, open the borders so we can get back to normal again. Lord, help my marriage. Lord, help my kids. Lord, you name it. There's a million situations we've all prayed that same prayer, right? Now, I think instinctively we find it a little bit easier to pray that prayer when something is happening to us, we feel like we don't deserve it, right? Something unjust is happening to us. And I think what makes this passage so interesting is Isaiah will pray the same prayer we've all prayed a thousand times, but he will pray it knowing full well that Judah are getting exactly what they deserve. And that's the difference. There's no injustice going on here. Everything that's happening to Judah is exactly what they deserve. Okay. Now, I realize that's probably going to raise a few questions, okay? So let's just clear a bit of ground on this passage and, and have a look at what's going on here. When you look at the end of the passage, it's clear that Judah as a nation and Jerusalem as a city have been conquered by a foreign army. So I can picture Isaiah standing on a hill looking over the once great capital of Judah and just seeing a city on fire. And the great temple that housed God's presence, God's people would worship, the center of national life was on fire and a pile of rubble now. And often what happened when a foreign army would come in is they would round up the people, they'd take them prisoner and ship them off to a foreign country to serve as slaves. Not the, you know, not the great blessings of the covenant thing there. And you know, Isaiah realizes that all this is happening because of Judah's unfaithfulness to God. In fact, what is happening to them is God invoking the covenant curses against them for their unfaithfulness. So he realizes, man, if I'm going to pray for God to come down and deal with his enemies, by Judah abandoning God, by Judah being unfaithful to God, they've put themselves in the position of being God's enemies as well. So if he says, God, come down and do justice to your enemies, well, Judah's just in the firing line for more punishment. And Isaiah doesn't pull any punches either. He's pretty clear that Judah knew exactly who God was. They had the covenant and they had the law and they knew what God required of them. Yet, they still just went their own way. Nobody seeks after God. Nobody calls on his name. When we continued to sin against your ways, he says. It's not just a one-off. It's not like they've stepped wrong and God's coming down on them hard. No, this is repeated, willful rebellion against God. That's what they've done. Now, in a small way, I understand this. Right? I've got a five-year-old daughter who's a little bit impulsive. And uh, she used to love sticking her fingers in butter. If you've got kids, you know that's true. And, um, you know, we would have to say to her, don't stick your finger in the butter, all right? It's at the table. And then, you know, you know what she would do? She'd lock eyes with us. She'd be like, and the hand would just go right there into the butter. And then she'd run away and laugh. I think it was hilarious, you know. But in a small way, it's kind of like, you know, Judah have locked eyes with God and said, we're going our own way. We know who you are. We know what you want. We don't want to follow you. So Isaiah sums up this situation like this. He says, everyone has become unclean, like one who's unclean. 
meaning something that's repulsive to God, something that cannot stand in God's presence, something that must be excluded from God's presence, cast away. And they are so thoroughly sinful, so steeped in their sin, that even their good deeds, even the good things they try and do, are like filthy rags. So the image here is like, think of the cloth you might use to wipe your kitchen bench. Go and take that cloth and soak it in some used motor oil, maybe something you've drained from your car. Soak it in that till it's black and dirty, all right? And then bring it back to your kitchen and start wiping the bench. You might have had really good intentions. You might have been, I'm going to be a good husband today. I'm going to clean the kitchen. Here we go. Dirty motor oil soaked rag. It's not going to make your kitchen any cleaner. The thing is, the rag is good for nothing. The problem is not your intention. The problem is the sin. So Isaiah comes to the end of this passage here, and all he realizes is that he, he can only fall on God's grace and mercy. That's all he's got. That's all the nation has. In fact, he realizes that the relationship they have with God is now solely dependent on God's grace and nothing else. For Judah to be saved, for Judah to experience salvation and rescue, it will come by God's gracious intervention alone and nothing else. And that's kind of where Isaiah ends in this passage. But I, I, think, I think that's the message for us too, right? I think the message for us today is just to be reminded again that, that our relationship with God, our salvation is also based on grace alone. Can I get an amen? amen? There we go. That's my dad saying the loudest one, by the way. All right. We'll get a glory out of you later, Dad. It's all right. I think, you know, for us, I think we've just got to remember and be reminded that when, our, when we say our relationship with God is based on grace alone, that means when we're at our best. You know, when we're kind, when we're generous, when we're patient, we're loving, when we're giving money away, we're reading the scriptures, we're praying regularly. We need to remember that our relationship with God is still based on grace alone and not how well we do those things, right? Mm. And on the other side is true, is when we're at our worst. Okay, when we are messing up day after day, when we indulge in the lust, when we feed the addictions, when we say the hurtful words, when we're the bully, right? when we treat other people badly, when we abandon God, when we walk away, our relationship with God is still then based on grace not on what we don't do or have failed to do. But, but, okay, there's a tension. There's a tension in this passage, okay? And I just want to acknowledge that there's a tension there, and I want us to sit with it for a bit. The, first, the tension that Isaiah acknowledges is that, you know, Judah's salvation is only going to come by grace alone. And when we say grace, we mean God giving Judah what they don't deserve, unmerited favor, Right? But he knows that their unfaithfulness means they deserve judgment. They deserve nothing but God's punishment. And he realizes this puts him in a, in a bit of a bind. He says, when we continue to sin against your ways, well, how can we be saved? Because he realizes God hasn't gone soft on sin, right? He hasn't gone soft and said, well, you know, okay, it's all right, guys. We're just a bit of a wink and a nudge. We'll sweep it under the rug. Sometimes I think we resolve it by thinking of God as this, this grandfatherly figure who's he's just going to kind of, ah, oh, you know, it's not so bad. Don't worry about it, guys. Or we, we think, you know, God's job is to forgive. That's what he's going to do, right? But Isaiah recognizes that God is good. God is holy. God is just. And that justice requires that he punishes sin. Otherwise, if he doesn't, he's really not good, nor holy, nor just. 
What kind of a God would allow you to continue to destroy yourself and chase after that which corrupts and destroys his good creation? So how can we be saved? I think we have the same question. We have the same tension. I think we just got to sit with that for a little bit, right? And not just try and resolve it too quickly. And unfortunately, uh, the passage doesn't answer it either. You know, there's no great revelation from God at the end of the passage, right? God doesn't come down and say, yes, Isaiah, I accept your prayer. Let's put everything right. Let's fix everything for you. Isaiah ends by falling on God's grace and mercy, but God doesn't answer. So I think what we've got to do here when we look at this passage is, is we just have to look at it in the light of Jesus. Because otherwise, Isaiah's prayer is just it's a cry into the dark. It's a cry awaiting an answer. But I reckon Jesus is actually God's fullest answer to Isaiah's cry for mercy. And I just want to have a look at a, a few of the ways in which Jesus is the answer in this passage. God, that you would tear the heavens or rend the heavens and come down. In Jesus, God did come down. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John in his gospel talks about Jesus as God in the flesh. God coming down to live with his people. We think about that. The second person of the Trinity the eternal Son of God, who for all eternity has existed in perfect communion with the Father and Spirit, decides to put on eyebrows, kneecaps, saliva glands, and a spleen, to quote Mark Strom, and experience all the joys, all the temptations, all the limitations and hardships of what it means to be a human being, everything we go through. But Jesus doesn't just do humanity like we do it. He doesn't just stuff up every day. And he doesn't do it in a sinful way. Jesus does it as true humanity. Jesus embodies exactly what God intended for human beings to be. Perfectly obedient to the Father. Clean, righteous, faithful. The one truly in communion with God daily. And you know, Jesus, he goes to the cross as this truly righteous and clean one. The one who's, who truly doesn't deserve what he's getting on the cross. The one who's, who's punished for something he really didn't do. He's getting punishment that he doesn't deserve. Yet, in the process of going to the cross, it's like he becomes a filthy rag for us, right? He becomes the one God uses to wipe away all of our sins. In fact, he becomes such a filthy rag that Paul can say later in his, in his, in his letters that he becomes sin for us. There's almost no difference between Jesus and sin on the cross And Judah experienced something of God's punishment against sin. Right? They experienced something of God's wrath. But Jesus is the one who experienced punishment beyond measure. He's the one who experienced the full fury of God's wrath against sin. You know, Isaiah prays, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you punish us beyond measure? God didn't hold back on Jesus. God punished him beyond measure. He, he punished him for every sin in the world. Every sin on Jesus was laid on the cross. And in Jesus, God did deal with his enemies. It's just that God's enemies weren't the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Romans or any circumstance or specific person. God's enemies were sin and death. They were the things that have corrupted and perverted and marred and destroyed and sought to work against God's good creation. And the New Testament writers, they don't speak about the cross so much in their gory terms. It's quite graphic, but... 
we know how, how, how shameful and humiliating the cross was, but they speak of the cross as a victory. God winning a great victory over the powers. You know, Paul says they, they tri- God triumphed over his enemies. He made a public spectacle of them. And Jesus is the awesome thing that God did that Israel did not expect. There he is three days later, raised from the dead. Nobody was expecting the Messiah to die on a cross. That's a failed Messiah. And nobody was looking for the Messiah to then be raised three days later. But there is Jesus, the awesome thing God did that no one was expecting. The first fruits of God's new creation. And all of us who follow Jesus, we can be assured that because of his resurrection, our resurrection too is secure. Our future is secure. And much like Judah rejected God in this passage, so we see people still today reject Jesus. But anyone who rejects Jesus is ultimately rejecting God's hand of mercy extended out to the world. They're rejecting God himself. Amen. Yeah. Isaiah's cry for mercy is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. It's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And it is because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross we can be saved. It's because of what Jesus has done on the cross we can be made right with God. It's because of what Jesus has done on the cross we can experience God's grace and mercy in our own lives. And that's the basis of our relationship with God. That's what God calls us to relate to him on. Solely on the basis of what his son has done on the cross and nothing else. Now, if we're honest, I think we kind of struggle with that a little bit. I think we, we find it easy to accept, yes, when I come to faith in Jesus, you know, it's by grace, right? But I think we struggle to live in an ongoing relationship with God that's based on grace. I think we want to naturally revert back to performance. I just want to kind of um, point out a few things in that, but before we do that, If you're anything like me, you don't stop sinning after you come to faith in Christ, right? I mean, when you gave your life to Jesus, did you suddenly become, you know, one of these kind of angelic saints you see in a Renaissance painting? Three inches above the ground is how far you hover. You've got a dinner plate behind your head. gives you a bit of a halo. You walk around with this faraway look in your eye. That happened to you? No? Okay, okay. not me. All right, fine. Didn't happen to me either. I mean, I'll give you 10 minutes, right? 10 minutes after you leave here today... Maybe five minutes after you leave the parking lot, okay, uh, before you think something or say something or do something sinful. It's inevitable, right? It's not like your personality changes immediately after you come to faith in Christ. In fact, if anything, what, what in my experience, and I hope this has been yours too, you just become more and more cognizant and aware of your sinfulness, of just how rotten a sinner you are before God because you, you become more and more in, into contact with this holy God and you realize there's a gulf that exists between me and God. So what do you do? How are we supposed to relate to God when we keep messing up day after day? I think nothing really changes, right? I mean, the same way that Isaiah related to God was to fall on his grace and mercy. I think God calls us still at that point to relate to him on the basis of grace and nothing else. To relate to him on the basis of what his son has done on the cross. Let me just give you a few dead-end paths we tend to go down. I just want to talk about them. I think the first path we tend to go down is this path of perfectionism. So I think that means when we mess up with God, we feel like we've got to make it up. All right, I know I've messed up God. All right, so what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do, 
is I'm going to have a longer quiet time every day. All right? It's going to add another half an hour into my quiet time. I'm going to read the scriptures more. I'm going to pray harder. I'm going to join another ministry team. I'm going to finally help that pack down team. All right? We could use your help today, I'm sure. Uh, I, I, I'm going to give some more money away, God. You know? uh, I'm, I'm going to be better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to put on a bigger smile. I'm going to pick myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to try harder because when I mess up, I've got to make up. And it's kind of funny. I think when we go down this route, it's like we look at the good works we do as some form of penance that would just kind of pacify God or absolve us of what we've done rather than seeing them as something that comes out of a relationship with God that's rooted in His grace, that's, that's responding to God's grace. I think sometimes the more we go down this path, the more we can get a little bit angry and start becoming a martyr. You know? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm working so hard. I'm on every ministry team. I'm praying every day. I read the scriptures all the time, but God just doesn't answer me. This is just so unfair. I mean, I am working so hard. I am such a good Christian. Why doesn't God just give me what I want? Why won't he speak to me? You become a bit of a martyr. Or if you're a bit like me, you can become terrified. So just a bit about... About my background here, look, I grew up in a tradition that some of you might, might have come from, um, very kind of Pentecostal, charismatic tradition. So if that's not your background, it, it might be a bit hard to understand. But we used a lot of language in my tradition around, um, you know, if when you come to faith in Jesus or you give your life to Jesus was the way we talked about it, God wipes your slate clean. Right? Have you heard that? Is it, is it, I'm the only one, all right? I'm the only Pentecostal here. All right. Hallelujah. Amen. Great, let's, yeah. It was a great, you know, I grew up in in one of those churches where people were prayed for and would fall over. They were speaking in tongues. There was all sorts of strange things going on. Sometimes we're godly, sometimes we're not, I'm sure. I don't know. Um, But, you know, that's that's the kind of thing, you know. And that that was the the sum total of the story. So I'm the guy who kind of overthinks things. I tend to reason and, and try and work my way through stuff. So I remember thinking, well, okay, Jesus has wiped my slate clean. Great, okay. But I keep messing up. So what happens to my slate after then? Well, it must get dirty. Okay, well, Jesus has gone to the cross once. I don't think he's going again. That boat has sailed. Uh, he's wiped my slate clean once. I don't think he can really be bothered to wipe it again the second time. It must be up to me to keep it clean. So, you know, I would find myself quite terrified of having done something that might have offended God, that might have put, put me in his bad books, that I have somehow done something without even realizing it. And then, you know, someone mentioned something. Oh, I know, someone gave me some, somebody said the stupid words, this unforgivable sin. And I, I think that just rattled in my head for years. I thought maybe I'd just done something that was unforgivable. And, um, you know, what I started to do was to say, okay, right, maybe what I'll do is I'll put up these barriers in my life that will say, like, I will not even get close to something that's sinful, all right? Now, if getting drunk is considered sinful, then I'm not even going to go to a bar. I'm not going to hang out with my friends if they're even having a party where there's alcohol. Or I'm going to be very, very careful about what I do there. Or if, you know, if, you know if maybe for you, if you, you realize that, you know, when maybe sex before marriage, that's, that's the thing that you really consider sinful. So, all right, we'll be in a situation where I'm not even in the same room as someone of the opposite sex. And I, I probably won't see any of that today because we're all, okay, we're all in the same room together. But we start to put up these barriers and we start to say, all right, okay, my relationship with God is based on how well I perform against these barriers I've put up. And it becomes less and less about what Jesus has done on the cross 
and more about how I can manage my sin. And, you know, for the longest time, that, that was really how I lived as a Christian. And I, I tell you, it's, it's, it's been incredibly liberating to realize that my salvation is based on what Jesus has done, not what I do. It's given me great joy. And, it, and it's, you know, as I've prepared this message, every time I've kind of got to this point, I've just felt the joy of my salvation wash over again and go, oh, Lord, I'm just so thankful for what you've done on the cross. Okay, so after I kind of, my confused ideas of what it meant to be a Christian and salvation were kind of cleared up, um, I think there's another way we can kind of go. When, when we tire of the perfectionist route, we go down the wallow in despair route. Okay, so what I think we do here is we start thinking like, oh, woe is me, look, I'm just too far gone. You don't understand what I've done, man. I can't even love myself. How could God love me? Oh man, I'm just, I am such a terrible Christian. I tell you what, on my best day, I'm maybe a two or a three out of 10 as a Christian, but I am surrounded by all these people that are eight or nine out of 10. I mean, they are just so holy. They got their lives together. They, their lives just seem to be going from strength to strength. But here I am, this pig in the mud. I'm a two or a three out of 10. If only I was like them. If only I was an eight or a nine out of 10. I tell you what, then God would love me. Then God would accept me. Then my life would get back on track. Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, in about the 1800s, he said, uh, I, I love this quote. I, I think I should probably have it cross-stitched or something and we'll put on my door. But if any man thinks ill of you, do not be offended, for you are infinitely worse than he thinks you are. <laughs> I think that's what we need on our, on our doors. You know? Put that up. I think that would spark some conversation. What? No, not a blight on your self-esteem, just a statement of fact, really, all right? You think you're a two or a three out of ten? i got news for you. You're not even in the positive territory. You are so far negative down the other end of the spectrum. You don't even feature on the charts. And those people you think are eights and nines out of ten, they're down there with you, right in the negative territory. You're all having a party in the same place. God doesn't call you to be a six or a seven or even a five out of ten. He's not saying get to some sort of standard before I'll accept you. He says, I know you're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. That's the point. You're never going to be a six or an eight out of ten. There's a gulf between us. There's a chasm you cannot cross. Jesus is the one who's good enough. Jesus is the one who's paid the price on our behalf. Jesus is the one who has welcomed us in. It's because of what Jesus has done that we're saved. Can I get a glory? Yes. All right. <laughs> I got to say, you know, I'm actually really glad to stand before you here today and say these words. I am not good enough. It's great. I'm not good enough. It's great. You'd think that'd be a blight on my self-esteem. You'd think that it'd make me feel more depths of despair. But no, I feel great joy and relief. I feel awesome. It just fills me with joy and freedom. You know Why? Because I was thinking about it the other day, I thought, man, if I had to appear before God and give an account of my life and say, here's why you should accept me. God, look at the business I built. Look at the people I employed. I've changed so many lives. Look at the money I gave away. I was a good husband. I did chores without being asked. Sometimes. All right. I was a good father. I built Lego with my kids. I played Barbie with my daughter. I even did the voices. It was great. You know, I gave money away. I didn't cheat on my taxes. I was a good employee some of the times. 
God, here are these crowns of gold I'm laying before you. Look at them. I'm just such a worthy person. Bring me into your presence. Let me come in. And at that point, you realize I pulled out these disgusting, filthy rags. I'd be terrified, absolutely terrified if I had to stand before God on that basis. Wouldn't you? But I tell you, it gives me incredible joy and relief to know that, man, my salvation is based on what Jesus has done, not what I've done. Oh, yeah, amen, hallelujah. I'm so glad my salvation is based on what Jesus has done, not what I've done. Man, such relief, such joy. And I tell you, as I close today, I just want to ask you one question. I want to leave you with a question, and nobody can answer this but you. All right? You could talk to other people about it. You could discuss it with your life group. But ultimately, this is a question every one of us is going to have to ask at this point in our Christian walk. Is your salvation good news or is it hard work? Is it good news or hard work? I want you to ask yourself that this week as you're going about your day. Whatever you come across this week, whatever happens to you, ask yourself, is your salvation good news? Does it bring you joy? Or is it just hard work? And nobody can answer that from you, but you. But I think when we go down these paths of perfectionism or we wallow in despair, all it does is it robs us of the joy of our salvation. It robs us of the freedom and liberty we have in Christ. And I would suggest to you that if your salvation feels more and more like hard work and endless hard work, perhaps you've stopped relating to God on the basis of grace and have started to relate to Him on something else. Something else has taken the place of what Jesus has done on the cross for you. Shall we pray? Lord God, I'm I'm aware this morning that, that between you and me and between all of us and you, there exists a chasm we could just never cross. Lord, when we are at our best, even the good things we do are like filthy rags compared to how holy and majestic and righteous and glorious you are. But Lord, restore to us this morning the joy of our salvation. Remind us again that you accept us solely on the basis of what Jesus has done on the cross. Lord, we thank you that we are never more accepted by you than we are right now because you have accepted us on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice. Lord, we thank you that you will never again be angry with us for you will never be angry with your son. Lord, fill us again and remind us again of just how far you've brought us. Lord, may our salvation be good news. May it bring us joy peace and comfort. It is in your son's name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415-0455 Thank you for listening.